it was the moment where I'm like, I have an obligation as a human with a perspective that is now better than it was to help people through comedy and through being funny and through being hopefully just a real human. So people around me that think about doing things to harm themselves might glean a feeling that will keep them from doing harm to themselves. Welcome to Backseat Driver. I'm your host, Nikki Bennett, and I'm a licensed clinical social worker. I'm here to help you navigate the twists and turns of life using real-world advice from me and my guests. Together, we illustrate how our greatest struggles often wind up being our greatest strengths. Thanks for listening. So, Seth, I don't know that much about you or your upbringing. (laughs) I just know that you're freaking hilarious. Oh, that's nice. (laughs) I think a lot of people that are gifted, whether they're funny or they're artistic or whatever it is, they struggle with hard stuff. So what are you willing to tell us about your personal life and your upbringing and how you became so hilarious or did you just come out of the womb that way? Um, No, I think, I think, um, you know, I'm a nature versus nurture enthusiast in terms of, I like to kind of find out or ask myself, what, what did I come with? What was I born with? And then what are the things that, you know, I learned along the way. And I think my dad was a very funny guy. Like he, he, when, I, when I was about 11 and a half, he was diagnosed with terminal brain cancer. And, um, at that time it was kind of one of those things that I didn't understand that, but he had set, he ended up living. So terminal ended up being 15 years later. Um, he, uh, passed, but, uh, he, those 15 years, his sense of humor and comedy and making things light and keeping things light were the things that kept our family grounded because we would, uh, it was kind of those things like, you know, in the person in the family, like if somebody drops a plate, you look to the person who always gets mad at somebody dropping a plate or spilling something. He was the person we always looked to when, you know, there's bad news dropped, like the doctor would call and say, well, um, we can do another surgery or, and he's just like, and we all look at him like, uh, how's he going to react? And he would always react. Like uh, he would say something funny. He's like, well, if I get another surgery, then I'm going to have a lopsided head on the other side of my head. <laughs> and we'd all laugh, you know, like he would just make, yeah. he would take the situation and he would deflate the tension and he would, uh, he would kind of inflate the, the humor and the fun. Uh, and I know it wasn't, uh, I shouldn't get emotional, but I know it wasn't easy for him, but he did it because that was him, you know? And so I learned a lot from him. Um, as to you're going to go through hard things and life's going to be difficult and challenges with kids or yourself or health or whatever jobs. Um, but he's, he, he just always took it and made it the most positive thing he could given the situation. And, and so I, I think that really, you know, really stuck with me and my other siblings is, you know, whatever you're going, going through, um, it could be worse, you know, and you can make it worse by having a crappy attitude. And he never did. So it was, that was my, my upbringing was riddled with, you know, my younger brother had cancer, you know, it was just kind of like getting, you know, gut punch after gut punch. But at the end of the day, um, it was a really, I think my, my wife says this all the time because she knew me in high school. She moved into my neighborhood when my neighborhood, by the way, was my neighborhood in high school. And she, um, 
she told me, she's like, your family was so close knit and you guys were all, you seemed to have such a evolved perspective as a high school student in terms of, you know, keeping things level and, and, and taking the positive and, you know, leaving the other stuff behind. And I, I 100%, you know, attribute that to the fact that growing, I grew up in like a house that was basically a hospital and we had to, uh, you know, take every day and enjoy it. Wow. That's, that's heavy. And I'm trying to resist, like, I'm trying to take off my therapist hat, but I can't. <laughs> like, <laughs> you want to apologize no, for crying? To... Like, tears are welcome. Yeah. Tears are good. <laughs> yeah. yeah that's... I know, but yeah. Yeah. So that was my, that was a lot of my, my youth. Really heavy stuff. So yeah. And I was the oldest, right? So so you had to kind of, okay, so now your dad has passed away. Mm-hmm. Do you sort of step into that fatherly figure for your younger siblings and your mom? Well, as much as I can, I try. My mom ended up getting remarried and, and uh, she seems very happy, you know, and, and, and we have a great relationship with her husband and, and I think it's great for her to have that companionship. But yeah, I, I think for my siblings, um, shoot, I hate this. <sighs> but dang it, Nicole, Nikki. <laughs> no, um, my brother recently texted me and he, uh, the movie Onward, I don't know if you're familiar with it from Pixar Disney, um, but where the dad has passed and the, the kind of... <laughs> doofus older brother does his best raising his younger brother or at least being the father figure. I hate that I'm crying, but um, yeah, he, he sent me this text. He was like, he just, it was a screenshot of the movie and he said, Is this healthy as a therapist? Is it healthy to kind of let this stuff out? It is, right? Oh my gosh, yes. You know what's interesting is I was just sitting here thinking, <laughs> this is what I love about my job. And it's not that I'm a sadist, but I know that when someone can cry, <laughs> they're doing the work. And it feels like such a sacred space. I just feel honored to share it with you. Oh, well, I appreciate it. But he basically texted me and he said, hey, thanks for being... Oh. He's like, thanks for being my, and insert the name of the older brother. I can't even remember in that movie. So obviously I watch it and I'm just emotionally done. <laughs> but it, uh, but it, it, it is. Because at the time I was just trying to do my best to replace an irreplaceable person and then to hear you know 25 plus years later that I didn't do such a bad job or at least some of my brothers and sisters it was meaningful yeah who has been there for you oh I've got great great friends my family my my younger brothers are my best friends in the world obviously went through the a war together um but my wife is my rock and i know you hear you probably hear that all the time 
Um, my kids are, you know, my other best friends, my wife. And, you know, it's so like everyone has, is just everyone that I'm attached to somehow makes me better than I would be without them. So my youngest son, Liam, is like just such a pure soul. All of my kids have these attributes that I just siphon from them by being around them and try to, you know, be a better version of myself because of their example to me. So I have great friends and family. I mean, I think, I think that support structure of people in your immediate circle is, I mean, it's critical, right? Like you, people outside of that circle can sometimes be mean and say mean things and do mean things. And, and, and you need that inner circle to say, Hey, it's okay. Whether that was warranted or not, you're going to be okay. Cause we love you. And, you know, we'll figure this out. So yeah, I have, I have a lot of people. And then obviously the digital community has been just a, a wonderful thing, you know, for me and my family. So about that, I, I came to one of your shows. It was years ago, the sock puppets with Anna and Brandon <laughs> and just awesome. thought it was hilarious. And so I followed you for a long time and you just have this ability to make people laugh. You're so creative in the things that you do and the antics you pull. You remind me of one of my best friends who was also a college roommate and we got into way too much trouble together. But I came across <laughs> most of yours, Seth, probably a year, a year and a half ago where you shared that you struggle with mental illness. And I yeah. felt, man, I just felt so drawn to you at a deeper level. And I felt, um, I don't want to use the word validated, but I guess I felt less alone. And oh, so good. About having you on the show, I was like, gosh, or, you know, as I go through my list of people, I thought, boy, that's somebody that not only can he make people laugh and has this ability to draw people in, in, in the social media realm. Like, I feel like I know you and I don't, um, but you, you, do. have, you have this willingness to show real life and to say, you know what, sometimes I take a break from here. I'm sorry. This is what's going on. Would you be willing to talk more about that, about your struggles with mental illness? I hate that word. Yeah. No, I, mean, I know. With humanness, I, I, let's just call it that. <laughs> I love that mental humanness because I feel like I am, a, like you said earlier, I'm a firm believer that everyone deals with anxiety to a different degree in their life. Um, and some people have been blessed with a level of confidence and self-awareness um, combined that allows them to like understand, but also put behind some of those maybe, I don't want to say failures or failings, but things that don't work out as optimally as, as they, they want them to. I tend to internalize failings to a degree that becomes um, very disabling and also damaging uh, for my progress. Uh, and it's taken me a long time to understand that, that, that what I am doing, you know, there, there are elements of OCD um, where I can't let go of something I thought about or something that happened and move forward. Um, but I think, and then anxiety, of course, I like, I should wear a shirt that says I'm, I have anxiety, be gentle or something because uh, every moment seems to be exacerbated one way or the other by my feelings of anxiousness. Um, I think the biggest thing about my mental well-being and mental humanness, as, as you said, is understanding 
and being able to not self-diagnose necessarily, because I do see, you know, a therapist and a doctor um, and I talk to people and I also talk regularly with my wife about these things. So, and my kids, so they know that this is not abnormal and this is not a bad thing. This is actually something that a lot of people deal with and you will deal with some aspects of these things. And so it's important to know what you're dealing with um, through re research, you know, experts like yourself and people who can tell you, um, you know, this is something that I've seen before or haven't seen before. Let's, let's try some things to come combat or to um, try to mitigate some of these feelings that you're having. And so I think knowing and understanding and being, being able to say, hey, being, looking at yourself through a kind of, like, not a self-critical lens, but a self-aware lens and understanding that this is just something that I have to deal with. And in order for me, and I think the big change for me, because I was so long for so many years, just shoveling those feelings under a rug that just got, you know, the pile just kept getting bigger under the rug. And finally, I, I decided in order for me to be a better father and a better husband and a better friend to those people in my life whom I love, and, and the people that I'm, that are strangers in order to be a better human, I need to understand these things and I need to research them and I need to be active in trying to find solutions to the things that I can find solutions for, um, you know, through again, therapy, medicine, if it, if, if it means that. And, and it's been great. I've been very blessed with great people like yourself who can help me understand those things better so I can move forward in a positive way. Totally. A couple of things you said that really stood out to me. One is that you said, I can, I can really feel emotions big on either side. I think that's so true of, again, humans, but some of us like you and I obviously struggle more with anxiety. There are so many common things about people who struggle with anxiety. So I get someone that shows up in my office and I'll say, I bet you're a perfectionist. I bet you're really deeply feeling super empathetic. You can feel other people's stuff. I bet you're honest to a fault. I bet you're really hard on yourself, that you're super creative and intelligent. And they're like, how did you know that? But we all have a degree of that just because we are anxious human beings and we're wired that way. Um, there was something else you said, oh, as you were talking about that responsibility to for your kids that's when i started therapy seth is when my kids started exhibiting signs of anxiety and ocd and i was like oh crap like here i've tried so hard because i i'm really curious about nature nurture too right i was like i'm never gonna talk about anxiety around my kids they didn't know i was afraid to fly and i'd be sitting there sweating buckets as i'm on the airplane isn't this fun guys <laughs> but they started exhibiting it. And so I was like, okay, I have a responsibility to do my own work. And I think all of us that struggle with anxiety and struggle with that whole, I'm not enough and I'm too much problem is that we suffer from imposter syndrome. And I know I do in my job all the time. I'll wake up if I'm having a hard time and it's like, not so much anymore, but in the beginning it was like, who do I think I am? I'm a therapist yeah. and I'm, but now I look at it as, Okay. And I've nicknamed anxiety. I call it Carl with a K. I think it's a terrible name. I'm sorry to any <laughs> listeners named Carl with a K. <laughs> I got so sick of saying I have anxiety or I'm OCD. Nah, a part of me struggles with that. And so I just call it Carl. And my husband will say, are you okay? And I'm like, it's Carl. And it's just like, it's explained. I don't have to go over and over it, but 
now whenever I experience that, I look at that as, okay, I'm in a PhD level, like doctorate level course. I've got to figure out the next right step so that I can help my clients and kids and people I love figure out the next right step. So I love that you have that kind of tenacity too. What are some of the things you've learned that have helped you cope with it? Um, uh, well, I, I think one of the, I touched on this, but one of the things that I struggle with the most is not being able to um, separate um, the situation or, or something that happens from the feelings uh, uh, involved of that happening, right? Where I, I, I find myself pretty consistently um, not being able to uh, shut something off that doesn't matter. Like it'll just be a nagging. And so I've had to do things where I'm like, I, it's a really weird thing, but it's like almost backward engineering, like where I should be and saying, well, okay, what's the worst possible scenario based on this thing happening? Like what, what is the worst case scenario? And so I'll go down that rabbit hole. And it turns out that the very worst thing that could possibly happen isn't that bad most of the time. And so it, it really has been, um, like you said, dissecting kind of the emotion of it and separating the emotion from it, uh, uh, from the actual happening and understanding that, you know, I can, I can, I don't have to like be dragged along by this happening. I can decide, well, no, that was, yeah, it wasn't great, but what did I learn from it? I think that's another key takeaway for me is what can I learn from situations that caused me a lot of stress and or anxiety, whether it's work-related or family-related. I think so many times, if you, the, I mean, the internet's a wonderful resource and people, uh, smart people like yourself who have this knowledge base and the skill set um, of helping people be able to, you know, really get down to the, the brass tacks of their issues. Those things, I'm very, I'm all about um, kind of what can I do to fix the problem? Like, what are my, what, how am I limited, but what can I do? And so I, I do as much as I can learning from those situations and finding out, you know, what is a better way to engage at the beginning of what ended up being a terrible ending? You know, how can I do a better job kind of not letting it get there? And, and so those things being self-aware again and asking yourself the questions and always looking at your, looking at myself and maybe this is, I'm too self-critical, but being able to look at myself in the mirror and say, um, you know, what was my contribution to the, the negative aspects of that either relationship or that, um, that occurrence, what, what can I do better next time? So I think being able to look at yourself through that self-aware lens has been and, and also being okay, knowing that you're not going to ever be perfect. And, you know, this is a progress along this road. Um, it's super, that's been super helpful for me. And I get, again, how did it start? A lot of therapists telling me like, okay, that helped that, you know, that, that happened. What, you know, when did you, and, and I, and then going backward through it, it helps to kind of helps me to understand where I maybe went wrong or maybe think where things didn't go perfectly right. So. I love that. I've just had a conversation with someone today, one of my clients that if you're going to, what if you have to, what if all the way to the end. Yeah. And I was reminded of sitting in one of my therapists, I call him the drill sergeant therapist. 
His name is Paige Palmer, and he does not, I mean, he is not for the faint of heart. Like, if I ever send someone him, I'm like, just so you know. <laughs> just, you're going to feel weird and bad about yourself a few times. <laughs> but, like, first session, I go in, right? And he says, what's the problem? And I'm like, well, I have this weird mystery illness. Okay, what's going on? Well, my tongue is on fire. It feels like I burned it with hot soup. My eye is numb. My right hand is numb. My right leg is numb. And the doctors can't figure anything out. And he's like, okay, so what's the problem? <laughs> I'm like, oh, <laughs> they can't figure anything out. And well, what if I'm dying? Like I could have a disease. He's like, you totally could. And I said, and I'm worried that the more I think about this disease, I want to make it happen. And he said, so if, if I'm hearing you right, if, if your mind is that powerful, are you telling me that if you obsess about becoming an armadillo with leprosy 24 hours a day, you can make it happen? <laughs> <laughs> that's no. a great point. Isn't that a great point? And he's like, okay, that's magical. And then he looked at me and he said, Nikki, you know, you're going to die, right? And in that instant, I was speechless for the first time in my life. And I was like, oh, I guess I am. Yeah. He said, you're totally going to die. And then what? And I said, well, I'm afraid I'm going to be replaced and forgotten. And he said, you're totally going to be replaced and forgotten just like you should. Your, your kids will be sad. Your grandkids might be sad. Your great grandkids, they might know your name. And after that, you're just a name on a pedigree chart. Interesting. And it was like, the truth hit me and in it, there was freedom. And he said, do you really want your great, great, great grandkids walking around moping? Oh, my great, great, great grandmother died, you know, 200 years ago. Like, of course you don't. So my homework was go home. And every time you have a worried thought, I want you to think, Nikki's going to die. Nikki's going to die. <laughs> in the grave. <laughs> I did it. And there was so much freedom. So I don't know if you've read the book, um, Loving What Is by Byron Katie. But if you haven't, you've got to check it out. I need to go. I need to write it down right now. Loving, Loving what, what Is by Byron Katie. Yes, she does the work. Yeah. And there's nothing about the human condition that you can bring to her and argue that it shouldn't be so. And that your suffering is coming from expecting it to be different than it is. Dang, I hate yeah. it, but it's true. <laughs> it's so true. But that you you also brought up something that I struggle with is like that we are so as I don't know. Maybe I look at all humans like we're. I am so capable of self fulfilling prophecy if it's a negative end. Like if I I can be like oh. You know, if because I took the wrong turn here and I'm going to be three minutes late for this mandatory whatever meeting, I, I and then I go down the negative road. But I I don't ever do that when something positive is happening. I don't ever say, oh, well, what fantastically wonderful things could happen due to this relationship that I have or due to this what I'm doing, like this business that I'm starting or whatever. Like all of a sudden you always I always people think of the failure and that it's like inevitable. Right. But they never think of like what amazing things could happen. It's through a self-fulfillment uh, kind of projection or self-fulfilling prophecy. So I, that's another thing that what my therapist said is like, you need to do a better job of talking about the positive potentials in your life instead of so much, like you said, Nikki's going to die. Like that's the, that is, I guess that's the one thing we all try to avoid more than anything is like, not being around anymore what was our legacy but the the most ironic part about it is the more we think about you know the negative things in our life we're unable to create that legacy it's only in the moments where you're like well 
I'm going to do this and come what may and like, let's see what happens and uh, be as positive about it as you can. And there's two ways to look at it, right? There's that I'm not going to think about that. I'm going to avoid it or the overly obsessing and either side is not good. I remember telling Mark Yamada, he's the guy that used to run the podcast with me. I said to him once, you know, all these bad things have happened in my life. And, and whenever I think about a bad thing happening, I panic because I'm like, oh, it's going to happen now because I thought about that, like insert OCD tendencies, right? And he's like, Nikki, you have present, you have predicted with 100% accuracy all these bad things that have happened because you worry about everything and you keep track of the successes, the times you predicted correctly. You don't keep track of all the times you were wrong that really hit me. It's like, so I started keeping a journal actually of just things I worry about. And whenever I feel freaked out, I go through and read it. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I worried that when my son went to Ghana on a humanitarian trip, that he was gonna get AIDS and be sex trafficked. Like, come on. <laughs> it sounds like, that's the funniest thing is like, you say it out loud. That's a really great point. I think it's, I need to start doing that as well as writing down things so I can go back and think, oh, that was ridiculous. Cause just like you said, it's it's, in the moment though, it is not crazy to you. And that's the hard part is because you don't want to feel like you were ever compromised intellectually or psychologically to a point where you were thinking things that probably or most likely are never going to happen. So, yes. yeah. And do it all in the same journal. Cause I used to do that and then I'd have to go weed through all the stuff and now it's all in one place. It's like my dirty burn book. Like I've got a red, I've got a red moleskin book I haven't opened yet. And that'll be the perfect book for it because it's red. It'll be like, that's the, yeah, that's the color of anxiety to me. So, yeah. Yes. Drama unhinged, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I love that tip. I'm going to start doing that. <laughs> Cause so, I think it also, it also has got to help you after the fact to look and be like, Oh, it's got to help moving forward where you can be like, well, I thought of that, you know, I thought some crazy things would happen, but they didn't in that situation. So I have to imagine it's beneficial as you move forward and you do that less and less. Maybe oh, yeah. I'm wrong. No, you totally do. Sometimes I'll pick it up and I'll just start looking at it and go, yeah, okay. I don't really need to write this down. I recognize something recently. I've been working with a new therapist on brain spotting. I don't know if you've heard of that, but it's no. So it's all about, it'd be interesting for you to try because you know, talk therapy is about prefrontal cortex stuff, like our logic and reasoning, making sense of things. Whereas brain spotting or EMDR is all about our nervous system and all the unconscious stuff. And so oh. if, you, if you look at the palm of your hand, kind of towards your wrist, that would signify like your brainstem, which is responsible for your breathing and your heart rate, and it keeps you alive. And okay. then if you put your thumb over the palm, that's your limbic system. So that's all your emotions. And those are intact when you're born. That's your like amygdala, your fight, flight, freeze. And then over the top, yeah. if you hold your fingers over the top of your thumb, that's your prefrontal cortex. So that's logic, reasoning, that's morals and values. When you get stressed out, the first thing to happen when people say, I flipped my lid, if you lift your fingers up, you literally lose control of your prefrontal cortex. You're not thinking with your rational brain. You're all about emotions and survival. And so... Hmm. MDR and brain spotting is about getting you into your subcortical mind, your subconscious mind, so that you can recall a memory and process the emotion that you didn't feel safe expressing during the time. So you said that your dad was the, the caregiver that you went to when you felt unsafe. 
And every human being and every animal on the planet were wired for survival. So the first thing we do is we look for somebody to save us. The next thing we do is we run, we fight, or we freeze. And if that fails, then we play dead. And so brain spotting allows you to be in that memory in a safe environment and feel all of the things that you didn't give yourself permission to feel at the time. This is something that I definitely am interested in because I feel like so much, so much of that initial reaction, like you said, is that like panic and um, not being able to control that initial reaction just kind of le- that does that that's downward spiral for me. It's like, it starts me on the escalator downhill. And if I can avoid that, <laughs> I'd be very, very interested. Well, yeah. that's interesting is it's like, it's so irrational, but in your mind, it's real, it's present tense and it's happening yeah. and you cannot argue Carl or Ethel or whoever your person is, you can't talk them out of it. And I never understood why until I read The Body Keeps the Score. Bessel van der Kolk, he's a psychiatrist and he said, he took all these patients, he put them in a functional MRI machine and measured their blood flow and watched what happened. And he said, you know, it was, spread throughout the brain pretty routinely. And then he pulls them out and he reads them through a script, like a trauma script of their life. And what he notices is their amygdala and their brainstem totally lights up. Their brain's like freaking out and their prefrontal cortex, there's no activity at all. So he's like, you you can do all the talk therapy in the world. And when you get triggered and your brain thinks it's unsafe, your subconscious mind takes over and all of your mindfulness skills and all of your CBT are out the window. It makes so much sense. That's really, it, that's fascinating because it all of a sudden creates, it, it creates this narrative where it's like, well, when you, when you're in that space of, let's say you're in that negative space of, of self-evaluation or whatever, you shouldn't, that, that's, that's not even, you shouldn't even be there kind of thing. It's like, you shouldn't have started there. You should have started deeper. Um, and then maybe that wouldn't have happened. I'm fascinated by this brain spotting thing. I've never, I saw the movie train spotting. That's as close as I've gotten to <laughs> I don't think it's the same. No, I don't think it's really interesting. And I will say, I forgot to mention people like us to just lump us in the category can also be a little controlling. Like I want to control and predict, right? A hundred percent. Yeah. And so brain spotting is very, it's, there's so many unknowns and it's still new in the psychological world as in like 15 or 20 years new. And so it's not necessarily an evidence-based practice, right? It doesn't have all the scientific research behind it. There is some, but I will tell you, whenever I do it, I had a session yesterday with my therapist and the strangest things happen. It's like, I'm having this weird hallucination, (laughs) hallucination. Like yesterday, I couldn't keep my eyes open. They were just like squeezing shut. And I was having all these memories actually from my mother's childhood. And thinking about her father having a stroke when she was nine and becoming incapacitated and her mother getting breast cancer when she was 10. And then my mom going through these series of hard things in her life. And it was so intense. I just was like, my eyes were squeezing closed. And, and then suddenly I, I went, Oh, it was just like clear as day. This isn't mine. This isn't even mine. This was like a learned response. And as soon as I voiced the words out loud, it was like the eyes open, my body calm. So I just have to remind myself, like, I don't have control. I don't have all the answers, but for whatever reason, when I do brain spotting, I, I sleep better, I feel calmer. 
I'm not as agitated. So it's interesting. It's definitely worth looking at. That's fascinating. I, one thing you, one thing you talked about where I'm like, I don't, I don't know if you can, it's one of those things where it's like, I don't know what is shoved down there in my subconscious brain. But when you're talking about physical representations or manifestations of those kind of feelings or emotions that, like you said, it's not even yours, but it's something that you obviously have a lot of feelings tied to that has, that, that in turn as controls a lot of your stress and anxiety. It's, it's really, I would love, uh, yeah, this is going to be my new fascination because I, I am, I don't even know how, how do you dig down into the subconscious mind and, and have a conversation that kind of, or how does a therapist bring that out that allows you to have those experiences where you're like associating things and like physical manifestations of, of past, you know, experiences. I don't even know. It's just crazy, but I know I'm, I'm open to anything that can help me kind of become a, a better human, better father, yeah. better husband. I so I tried everything and I'm a firm believer in that Chinese proverb. When the student's ready, the teacher appears. I've tried energy work. I went trekking in the Himalayas. I have tried everything minus jumping out of a plane and skydiving. That's like terrifying to me, but, but brain spotting the way it actually works. I now practice it with my clients and it's fascinating. It's really hard as a provider. The first time I experienced it as a, as a client was like, this is a joke. What am I paying her for? She's just sitting there. She's not even talking. Now yeah. that I'm utilizing it as a practitioner, it is so intense. Like I have to remind myself to breathe because we're sitting with people in pain, in agony. Right. And so yeah. normally you think I go to therapy so I can feel better. So they can tell me something to calm myself down. Whereas in brain spotting, I have someone come in and I say, okay, give me an activating event. And they'll bring up something oftentimes when they first start as with me, it's something present tense, something really recent. Okay. And I'll say, okay. And then I'll have them look straight ahead and say, okay, notice where do you feel that in your body? And they'll say, oh, I feel it in my chest or my stomach or my jaw or my feet, right? It's, all, it's always different. Then I'll say, okay, now I want you to look, keep your head straight, but look to the left with your eyes and tell me what you notice. And they'll go, oh, nothing. And they'll say, okay, now look to the right and the tears will just start to come. It's the strangest oh. thing. Like, they'll just start this to stop. This, right? this might be too much for me, but no, yeah, I... <laughs> and then I'll say, okay, now scan between your midline and that part, find the place where you're most intense and then scan up and scan down. Usually wherever someone starts with their brain spot, their mind and their body ends up somewhere completely different. And so I'll watch, I had a client a few years ago and she's a few years, a few weeks ago, she was like, I feel like I need to run. Like my feet want to run. And I said, run. So she sat in place and her feet were just running, running, running. She's panting and I'm going crap what's happening. Right. Yeah. And then all and she starts to cry and then her face just huh it's like her shoulders slump she leans forward her face just softens all the tension's gone and she's like ready to fall asleep and i say okay where's oh. your distress level and she's like it's negligible okay well are you ready to squeeze the lemon can we turn up the distress a little bit more it's almost like sweating those emotions out and i'll tell you Seth, like the first time I started with something present tense, I ended up way down another road. The second time I had a memory and it was a fight my parents had when I was four years old. And I, it's not like it was suppressed. I've always remembered that fight, but it's been no big deal, right? Mm -hmm. So I said to my therapist, well, I had this memory come up. So maybe it's worth brain spotting. It's kind of weird that I thought of it. 
it was so strange because the second I started, I felt, I totally embodied that four-year-old girl. I felt all the things that I guess you I You were four get. again. I was four again. I felt yeah. sad. I felt scared. I felt confused. I felt embarrassed because my friend was over and I sobbed and sobbed and sobbed. And I was like, holy crap, I had no idea. Your nervous system has no idea whether something happened 30 seconds ago or 30 years ago. It hmm. just knows that like it needs to keep you safe. So after then, I'm crying and crying. And then suddenly I'm like, it's gone. I'm done. Slept like a baby for a solid week. It's just really That's bad. crazy. Well, I, I think I'm ready. I, I, I don't know. I, maybe we need to get together and you need to help me with this. But I, because you, you explain like people go to therapy to feel better. I actually, when I go to therapy, I feel like when I go, I'm, I'm nervous every time because I'm like, this should feel like, I don't know. I should be uncomfortable coming out of this. I should relive or, or, or experience some things that are going to make me better, but not without some pain. You know, I, I, I hope that, you know, it helps me be better, but I assume there's going to be, you know, some hard stuff to work through, um, to get to that point. But I, I, therapy to me is kind of one of those things like going to the gym. Um, you go, you need to exercise those parts of you that are weak, um, to be, to make them stronger. And, uh, there's no different to me with my, the tools that I'm trying to establish and build in order to fight my anxious feelings or my OCD, um, or some of the bipolar episodes that I've, you know, been victim to, or been a part of in the past. So I I love that. That's really interesting. So maybe we need to, maybe you need to brain spot me. No, let's talk. I'm curious that one of my favorite posts of yours and you do it about once a year, I think is your letter to the anxiety. I probably need to write it another one for my, uh, you know, my OCD and my, uh, yeah, anyway, but you want me to read it? Yeah, that'd be great. Dear my anxiety, thank you for always being there for me. Many friends come and go, but not you. You're always there. You seem to always go the extra mile. Remember that one time you crippled me in front of a group of fellow third graders and brought me to tears because I couldn't decide which school lunch option to choose. True story. That was awesome. I'll never forget it. Or the times you make it almost impossible to leave my house because I worry myself sick, wondering what the world thinks about every single thing I do. So rad. Thank you for the constant cold feet, the sleeplessness, and the not-so-subtle jabs from your buddies, panic and fear. I have a feeling we are going to be friends forever. Hugs? Question mark, Seth. <laughs> I love it. It just totally resonated with me. <laughs> what? Two questions. What yeah. gives you the courage to share your struggles openly and... After you share your struggles, do you go through what I go through? Because last night I gave a presentation at church on suicide. Some local basketball team in my neighborhood, 13-year-old girls, one of their peers took her life. And so I oh, just horrible, heavy topic, right? But I was really open. I was like, listen, I have mental illness. And I'm trying to like normalize it so that these girls will feel comfortable talking. And, And I'm up there and I'm like, I'm on fire. This is so good. I was made for this. And then I go home and I'm like, oh my gosh. I made such a fool of myself. Who do I think I am? Do you go through that? So those are my two questions is what gives you the courage? And do you go through that shame hangover after that I always feel when I put something vulnerable out? Well, first of all, I'm sure your presentation last night was amazing. And I'm guarantee nobody thought the negative things that you projected them thinking, you know, from your, from your, from your standpoint. But um, this is, I'm glad you asked this question because um, 
gosh, that that girl committing suicide really that wrecks me. Poor family and friends. Um, but I think I decided so uh well, we're gonna get really vulnerable vulnerable here, and I hope you don't mind. Um no. I when I was about 15 years old, I don't know exact how old I was exactly, but it was in my 15th and 14th, 15th year. Um, I, I went, I hate talking about this out loud, but I, I went to my dad's closet to retrieve a gun and to kill myself. And it was one of those closets with the bifold door doors. And it's only important because one of them was squeaky. And my dad, who was home at the time, uh, uh, you know, not quite bedridden, but in a, in a, you know, sick. He heard that door, that bifold door open. And he, um, came in to find me fiddling with his gun that I knew the combination safe or safe combination safe. I knew, but he, he saw me, um, probably didn't know what to think. And I don't even know what I was thought I was going to do. I, I, I think I knew what I was going to do, but he came in and stopped me. And he gave me a letter that he wrote to me when he was diagnosed with his illness that he thought he would deliver to me on his deathbed, like within, you know, a day of the end of his life. But he gave it to me then. And it, I, I mean, I don't have to get into the what was in the letter. But immediately, I had an overwhelming feeling that I need to be better for the kids like me who need people like my dad. So I don't know. God, I'm sorry. I don't know if it was that moment where I decided, well, my dad's going to leave, so I need to become my dad. But they're really, they're, uh, it was, it, to go to your question, it was the moment where I'm like, I have an obligation as a human with a perspective that is now better than it was to help people through funniness or through comedy and through being funny and through being hopefully just a real human so people around me that think about doing things to harm themselves might glean information or a feeling that will keep them from doing harm to themselves so 
yeah, long story short, I'm not. I think because I was so close to doing what that poor girl did, I know I have to be there and and be a light for people who are dark. Absolutely beautiful. I am speechless. I feel like we just need to end the show by just having a good cry together. <laughs> Darn you, Nikki. <laughs> no, I'm just saying like, I've never told that story. But if me telling, my kids don't even know. But if, and I probably need to share it with them, but I don't know how, you know, maybe this is the way they hear it. But I think it's important to know that everybody struggles, you know, and yeah. It's one of the things I shared last night with these 13 year old girls was that, you know, I said, I'm not going to ask who here has has had suicidal ideation. I'm just going to volunteer that I have. I have had moments where I went so far as to, well, maybe I could do this. Well, yeah, but knowing my luck, it won't work. Or maybe I could do this, or maybe I could do this, or maybe I could disappear, but then my family's going to think I abandoned them. Like, I think we've all felt that way. And I, I mean, five years ago, I was diagnosed with an illness that rocked my world. And I went to, I started going there. Um, I was diagnosed with spasmodic dysphonia, just so I don't leave this like looming question mark out there. Right. Mm -hmm. And I don't know whether I have it or not. Sometimes it acts up, sometimes it doesn't. It's a neurological condition that causes my voice to lose quality. So I like Diane Rehm, right? Interesting. So I felt I, I really Diane Reem, by the way, my favorite NPR personality of all time. So go ahead. Keep going. Okay. So for a while I did the Botox injections. I hated those. I quit. And it acts up sometimes and other times it doesn't, but it really spiraled me into this downward depression. I love to talk and I like to make people laugh and I like to have deep conversation. And I suddenly found myself without a voice. And I remember going to one of my favorite professors and saying in a terrified, like state of mind, like, Dr. Dave, I'm having suicidal ideation. And it was so hard to even say the words. And he was like, you know, I don't think there's a person in this building who hasn't thought of taking their own life. And just hearing those words was like, oh my gosh, I'm not alone. I'm not broken. It's okay. I think we all feel that way some way, sometimes. And so I'm, I so admire and appreciate your vulnerability and your willingness to have that conversation. One of the things just to I want to like fix everyone's problems and answer everyone's questions. So I'm sorry for getting on another tirade, but no, I love it. No, I think that's a question for all parents is how do I talk to my kids about this? It's just so important that you do. One of my sisters in law said to me, I'm so worried about my son. Like, is he going to take his own life? And I said, well, have you asked him? She said, no, I don't want to give him the idea. Right. That's how I was raised. We don't talk about things or it'll give the kids an idea. I mean, school teachers felt that way. Everybody did. Right. And now research has shown talking about it actually builds resilience. It's not talking about it. That's a risk factor. And so my kids are so used to having the suicide talk and they're always like, oh, mom again. Yep. Again. And so the way to do it, this is what I said to my sister-in-law is I would say, Hey, you seem like you're really struggling right now. I'm really worried about you. Are you okay? You know, and they'll say, yeah. And you say, have, have you, sometimes when people are feeling this low, they think about taking their own life. Have you thought about that? 
And she's like, oh, he'll for sure say no. And I said, okay, and you're gonna be ready for that by saying, okay, well, that's really great, but I promise there will come a time when you do. I have felt that way. I have felt so low that I wanted to end it all. And the second she did, her son burst into tears because he finally felt safe enough to share the truth. Mm. So we've got to talk about it. And I will say to my kids, okay. And I say this to clients, I'll get a brand new client. The scariest thing I can hear in my office is I'm thinking about taking my life. And then I'll say, have you thought about how? And they'll say, yeah, I'm going to do this. And my heart rate's going up, right? And I'll say, okay, what's kept you from doing that? Why haven't you acted on it? That's such a, it feels like such a cold question, right? But right. when they answer it, it's, I could never do that to my family. I had a client a month ago say to me, you know, I thought about the fact that if I take my life, I'm transferring my pain to the people I love the most in the whole world, my kids. Mm. And I don't want my kids to feel the way I'm feeling right now. So these are the things I try to remind my own children and my clients, like, hey, here's the reason that I've stayed alive, that I've chosen to continue. My son's example is, well, mom, I have FOMO. I want to see what amazing things I'm going to do in my life. I'm going to show all those naysayers how awesome I am, right? Yeah. Um, I know it always gets better. I know that I'm not alone. I'm one of 7 billion people. We all feel this way some way, sometimes. And then the next question is, what do you do when you feel that way? Or what can you do? And hopefully they'll give you answers. If they don't, I always say, hey, for me, it's nature, it's yoga, it's good music and dance parties, it's laughter. So thank you for being a part of that. Oh, it's well, honored. meditating and therapy and anything that makes me feel that, that helps me cope with those emotions, knowing they're gonna pass. If I sit in them, they're eventually gonna pass. Yeah. And then the last question is, who can you talk to? And you wanna hear that they can talk to a school counselor, a friend, a parent, I've had one of my son's friends tell me he was going to take his life. And the first thing I did was call his mom and he was mad at me. And he said, why did you do that? And I said, because I love you that much. I knew how mad you'd be. And I love you that much. So we've got to talk about this. So can I, let me review those questions from just for my sake. So the first thing you ask is, you know, you seem like you're struggling or is everything okay? How are you doing? And then when they inevitably, like teenagers do say, I'm fine. It's like, well, you know, sometimes when people are sad, they think about harming themselves or others. And so are, you know, and then the next question is, or the next statement is a statement of, well, this is, I've been through these feelings before and giving them the opportunity to understand that it's not, you know, isolated to them. And then um, what was that last question? Because I think that's if they open up, if they say no, dad, truly like, no, then you say, well, that's awesome. I'm so glad. And if you ever feel that way and you probably will, please come to me because I've been there. And then if they open up, you can say, okay, what's kept you from doing that? Why haven't you acted on it? You're trying yeah. to, get them to give you all the reasons to stay alive. And then what, what do you do when you do feel so maybe your kids would say, no, I've never had that. And you say, okay, help me understand. Like, why? Why would you never consider that? You want them to give you all the reasons. And then it's, okay, what are, the, what are the things you do when you do get that low to help you just put one foot in front of the other, just wake up one more day, just take one more breath. I tell people that don't think about the beginning from the end. Don't think about the next 24 hours, just the next breath. And then the next breath. And then the next breath. 
and remind them I'm here. I'm here breathing with you. Even if I'm not in the same room, I'm breathing with you and we're all on the same journey. And then who can you talk to? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can't remember the exact conversation I had with my dad in, in, in his room that day, but I, I do know I, I felt he was, I didn't feel judged and I didn't feel like I was in an unsafe place. And I didn't feel like he was looking at me like I was damaged goods. He was, he was there with me and he, he expressed that same kind of empathy that he felt similarly in his life. But I, I, it's just, I, I'm just, it's one of those things where you kind of have shame that you ever allowed yourself to get to that point. But then you realize like, no, that's, everyone struggles and sometimes you know sometimes like this 13 year old girl people aren't able to get them before bad things happen but i think that's why it's so important to just be that positive light as much as you can and let people know that you're there to if nothing else be a listening ear or bounce some jokes off of or just have a funny conversation or you know laugh at the fact that i wear ridiculous costumes and drive my kids to school so whatever i can do i just uh yeah it's nikki i've never i've never had this many emotions talking to someone <laughs> during an interview so kudos to you well i just so appreciate your vulnerability and your willingness to be here i know how hard it is and i, ho I hope and pray that you don't leave this conversation feeling that shame hangover like did I really share that? Because I know that you've helped me today and you. Oh, I thank you. I, I definitely will like be like, Oh my gosh, what have I done? Cause I'm, I'm, I don't know. I'm an open book. And sometimes I'm like, shouldn't have been so open, but. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? I don't think you can ever really be too open with the truth. I really don't. Well, I appreciate it. It invites vulnerability from others and it also creates safety. I'm, I decided in January I was going to take a sabbatical and then I just couldn't do it. And so I told my clients, if you want to continue to work with me, you have to join a group, a coaching group. You have to go twice a month and you have to do individuals once a month. And none of them wanted to do it. And they're all telling me like how much I'm getting like tearful testimonials every week on how much they love it. Because there's something about sharing your story, words and all, and knowing you're still so loved, not in spite of it, but because of it all. Well, I think and kudos to you for being so vulnerable too all the time on a, on your on your podcast. It just feels like it's very you create a safe environment because you're willing to talk about things that you struggle with, and I think that's such an important key in in you know getting other people to open up is just to be like, man, you're not alone because none of we aren't alone. But that's the hardest part is to help people with that limited perspective to understand that they're not a, it's not an isolated incident, you know, for them. So. Well, thank you. Thank you. Any advice, like parting words of wisdom for our listeners today? Oh, you, I, check out brain spotting, go see Nikki. I know I need, I need to come talk with you more, but I parting advice. I think, um, I, I, my, my mantra lately has been, you know, try to do the best I can and, and try not to care as much about what you think other people think of other people think just do the best you can. I think other, the people who are supposed to appreciate what you're doing will appreciate it. And, um, they'll, they'll glean what they need to glean from it. And that everyone has some gifts to share that are so amazing. Like this has been such a great conversation for me. And I feel 
I feel really kind of, I feel great. I don't know if this is how I'm supposed to feel, but um, I do too. No, I feel, I feel great. And I think, you know, being vulnerable is such a hard thing sometimes, but I've got had so many wonderful experiences by just not being afraid to talk about, you know, what I feel is either a weakness or um, something that I'm working on. I, I get people coming to me and saying, oh, I feel I, I'm the same way. I experience the same thing. And um, that community, right, that you mentioned is like so important. Like you said, going to, it, you have to go to these group things because those, those are the moments where you learn about yourself, things that you wouldn't have learned when you're by yourself. So I think surrounding yourself by friends and loved ones and people who are like-minded is super critical. And I, I, I'm super happy that we're now very close friends. Me too. And I hope this is the first of many ongoing conversations. And that's it for another episode of Backseat Driver. Please share any questions with me via email at podcastbackseatdriver at gmail.com or you can find me on Instagram at Backseat Driver Podcast. Remember, wherever you are, whatever you're experiencing, you're not alone. I'm here breathing with you, helping you navigate the twists and turns of life from the backseat. Thanks for listening. Bye.